0: A quick warning before we begin. This episode will contain the names of people and places that are entirely fictional and that I am sure to mispronounce almost every time. Please don't hold that against me. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, Sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. From Stephen or Else Media, this is Hither Came Conan, the podcast that can beat up your podcast, you know, because of its steely thews. I'm your host, my name is Stephen, and guess what? This is episode number 25. That's uh, That's kind of a big deal, right? Of course it is. It's an anniversary episode, and it demands to be celebrated. So let's hear it, folks. You know what, though, with the four bonus episodes that I've already done, we've really done 29 episodes in total. So, yeah, what do they call that? Legacy numbering. So, this is episode number 25, but episode 29 with the legacy numbering. I mean, on the artwork I put together for the website, where like for this one, it'll say episode number 25, but should I stick a circle on there somewhere with a 29 in it? I think I might. Or at least I'll give it a try. And hey, speaking of bonus episodes, by the time this episode lands, there will be a brand new bonus episode available for second-level members and above over on the Super Secret Steven Society. And it's a doozy because I recently watched the first episode of the 1992 Conan the Adventurer animated series, and good Lord, I wanted to talk about it. And talk about it, I did. So I made a bonus episode for members of the Super Secret Stevens Society. It will be made available here on the main feed eventually, but that won't be at least for 90 days from now. And even then, it's only going to post here if after those 90 days, I have a week in which I don't have another episode ready. Meaning, yeah, if you don't want to wait, come be a member of the society. $2 a month is all you need to get the bonus episode. Join now secretsociety.stevenorells.com that link is in the show notes. Today folks, how about we move one step further down that Marvel Comics Conan road with Conan the Barbarian number 20. This issue sports a cover date of November 1972, but it hit the stands in August. It sold for 20 cents and it is entitled The Black Hound of Vengeance. It was written and edited by Roy Thomas. Barry Windsor Smith is the artist. Dan Adkins is the embellisher, and the letters were by John Costanza. Into the boat! Previously in Conan the Barbarian. Conan, Fafnir, and an army of Turanians make war upon the city of Makalit in retaliation for the abduction of their living man-god, Tareem the Incarnate. Karamakad, Makalit's high priest, the true power in the city, sets loose a mirror demon to protect the palace. When Conan climbs atop the seawall to help Fafnir, who had been shot in the arm by a flaming arrow, Conan removes the arrow from his ginger pal's arm, then leaving him behind, he joins the battle down below to take out the Mirror Demon. Conan kills the demon, saving the day, but doesn't notice when Fafnir falls from atop the wall and into the ocean. As issue 20 opens, Conan and the surviving Turanian warriors climb from out of the sea and into their Turanian ships. Once on board, Conan is met by a soldier named Alephdahl who thanks the Sumerian for slaying the Mirror Demon and saving the day. Conan's only response is a bit on the cold side and is entirely dismissive when he tells the man that his name is Conan and that he was only doing what he was paid to do, nothing more. The Barbarian moves on and asks a Tyrrhenian boy about the Great Redbeard who was wounded on the seawall, asking if the man has been brought aboard. The boy tells Conan that he is on the middle deck with the other wounded. Making his way through the middle deck, Conan finds the scores of wounded men, so many that they are practically piled atop one another on the blood-stained floorboards. He soon locates Fafnir and discovers that after the Vannermen fell into the ocean, Foul water saturated his wound, filling it with a deadly infection, leaving no alternative than to have his arm amputated along with the shoulder. Conan, showing that yes, he does have a tender side, holds his friend for a time and then sits with him, staying at his side and keeping watch over him until night comes and Balthas summons him to a meeting with the prince. A meeting That promises Conan a chance to get a bit of revenge against the people of Makalit and the soldiers who took Fafnir's arm. Conan, Balthaz, and a few others are to take a small boat into Makalit, where a contact on the inside has informed them that a wharf will be empty and waiting. Once the boat is tied off, they are to sneak into the city, locate where the living Tareem is being held, and steal away with him. Everything goes according to plan, except... When they arrive at the wharf, they are met by guards who attack. Balthaz, doing his best, Admiral Akbar exclaims that it's a trap! It's a trap! That they have been betrayed, and that if they are to die this night, they are to take as many of the enemy with them. Conan, in exasperation, points out that the sides are evenly matched and that there's no reason why they should have any trouble taking out the guards. He also states that he doesn't think that this is anything more than a group of guards stumbling upon them. And not a trap. It's not a trap. And that they should continue forward to gain their prize and leave just a few men behind to mop up. Balthaz, reminding Conan who's leading the mission, decides to take the barbarian's advice and they head deeper into the city. We built this city. They encounter more guards along the way, and while Balthaz orders his men to kill them all, Conan ignores him and leaves a man alive to interrogate, threatening to cut off the guard's ear if he doesn't tell them where the Tareem is being held. In this racket, they selected another victim and threatened not to beat him up if he didn't pay them. The guard points them to a nearby temple, and Conan rewards him by leaving him alive. But still, so no alarm is raised, he knocks the man unconscious. Once in the temple, the four men split up to find the Tareem. Conan eventually finds himself in a room where he finds a sword in a ruby-crusted scabbard slung over a large shield that's hanging on the wall saying the words finder's keepers quietly in his brain. Finder's keepers, losers, weepers. He removes the sword and scabbard from the wall when suddenly he's caught in the act when a woman walks into the room. She calls him a thief and Conan calls her a temple wench. Her name, she tells him, is Keisha. Meanwhile, the king is being informed that Turanians have infiltrated the city. The king, however, seems not to care, wondering aloud where his wife might be. Conan, in the meantime, is still hanging with Keisha, the temple wench, when Karam enters, summoning an undead warrior to escort the barbarian to the Mountain of Death in the East. Conan's not all that keen to go off with this undead warrior, and as Keisha shouts for the barbarian to flee, Conan does just that. It's after he leaves the room that we learn that Keisha isn't who she says she is. She's actually the queen. You are Mary Queen of Scots. I am. Conan's not around to hear this discovery, however, because he's too busy sprinting through the halls of the temple. He comes across a mirror and looking into it, sees himself, but a skeletal version of himself. Conan, fear gripping his heart, smashes the mirror with his sword before moving on, finding himself in a vast room of mirrors. The walls, the ceiling, even the floor is made up of mirrors. Welcome! To the world! In the middle of the room, a man, his back to Conan, sits on a throne atop a marble dais, and Conan is certain that the man is the living Tareem. Who are you? I am Mr. Susan, guardian of the mirrors. Wanting to look upon the Tareem's face, Conan creeps closer and closer, until eventually he springs a trap. It's a trap! Opening up a panel in the floor, in which the barbarian falls through, landing painfully in a dark room below. He quickly discovers that he's not alone when a low snarling sounds in the dark. Luckily, Conan still has his stolen sword, for from out of the dark bounds the Blackhound of Vengeance, a large black dog that leaps upon Conan. Conan and the dog, which is as big if not bigger than the barbarian, fight it out in the dark room. The dog is able to get one of Conan's biceps in its mouth and it clamps down, drawing blood, Dog and Barbarian wrestle about on the floor until Conan manages to pull his arm free, leaving some of his flesh behind but removing a couple of the dog's teeth at the same time. It's not long before the dog is back atop Conan and the Barbarian stabs it with his sword, but to no avail. The dog only rolls away, taking the sword with it as it's still embedded in the creature's chest. It's back on Conan in an instant, And the two wrestle some more until Conan, finding a chain on the floor, wraps it around the dog's massive neck, strangling the thing until the barbarian is able to get a hold of his sword that's sticking from the creature's chest and pushes it deeper into the dog, ending its life at last. Conan, wounded and exhausted, rolls out from under the dead beast and stumbles from the room and into the ocean, where he is found by the Turanians and brought aboard the prince's ship. Once aboard, one of the soldiers approaches and whispers to Conan, telling him that Fafnir is dead, that Balthaz had returned to the ship before the barbarian and had ordered all of the dead removed from the ship, dumped overboard into the ocean. He ordered that Fafnir be thrown into the ocean as well, and that while the Vannerman was alive when he hit the water, by now he has surely drowned. Conan, silent as the night, turns from the soldier. And unarmed, strides calmly across the deck, seeking out Balthaz, and upon finding him, asks the man in one softly spoken word, Why? Balthaz, his voice reeking with contempt, tells Conan that Fafnir would have died anyway. What use to feed and coddle a one armed fool? Then, feeling that he is safe from Conan's rage, what, with both a scimitar and a dirk at his belt? While the barbarian stands there with no shoes on, wounded and unarmed, Balthaz tells Conan to move on from him, or he too could meet a similar fate. Conan says nothing, and for a moment just stands there looking at Balthaz, the silence hanging between them like something alive. Then, with an almost unnatural swiftness, Conan reaches out, pulls the dirt from the scabbard at Balthaz's belt, and plunges it deep into the Turanian's heart, killing the man instantly. Then, before the body had even begun to drop to the deck below, Conan pulls the scimitar from the corpse's belt and makes ready to kill himself a big bunch of Turanians. The soldiers, however, stand frozen in both shock and fear, moving not an inch toward the barbarian until the voice of the prince calls out the order to kill him. The deck erupts into battle, and Conan moves among the soldiers like a striking snake until only the Barbarian remains standing. Only Conan, that is, and the Prince, who stands barring Conan's way off of the ship. More soldiers arrive from below deck as the Barbarian lashes out with his borrowed scimitar, slashing the Prince across the face. And so, as the issue ends, and as Yestergird falls to the deck clutching his face in pain, Conan drops the scimitar and dives from the ship into the dark sea below, followed quickly by a hailstorm of arrows. Okay, so the title of this issue, The Black Hound of Vengeance, was taken from the title of a Robert E. Howard story, The Black Hound of Death, which is not a Conan story. The Black Hound of Death was a horror tale that was first published in the November 1936 issue of Weird Tales magazine. And since nothing from the story was used in the issue, I I didn't read it. Roy did, however, eventually adapt the story in issue 219 of Savage Sword of Conan, which was published in January of 1994, if you want to go look for that. As for issue 20 of Conan the Barbarian, you know, the one we're talking about, According to Roy, everything came together smoothly in the production of the issue. Nothing bad at all happened. It all just fell into place the way the production of a comic book should. Barry had plenty of time, and Dan, the inker, had plenty of time, which is probably why this issue looks pretty damn good. Now, it was Barry's idea to include the reveal of Fafnir's missing arm, showing Fafnir in such a way in those first four panels so that you don't see the left side of his body. And therefore, you don't know at that point that the arm is missing. And when we do finally see that, it's a bit shocking. And I'm probably going to talk about it a bit more when we get to my favorite bits. The temple wench, Keisha, who turns out to be the Queen Melisandre, was named for Keisha, the goddess of chess, which first came to be in various poems that I really didn't have the strength to research. But Trust me, if you want to look it up, the information is out there, C-A-I-S-S-A, Keisha. The mirror that Conan encounters that he shatters when he sees himself as a skeleton in it and the room of mirrors that he comes across, while not mentioned in the issue, these are mirrors that once belonged to a wizard by the name of Tuzan Thun. And while this information will be revealed in a later issue, it's not really a spoiler. And since Roy brings it up in his book, Barbarian, Barbarian Life, a Life, Literary Barbarian Biography Barbarian, of Conan the Barbarian, specifically when he's talking about this issue, I'm going to go ahead and talk about it here as well, very briefly. So Tucson Thune first made his appearance in a Cole story written by Robert E. Howard called The Mirrors of Tuzan Thune. It was published in the September 1929 issue of Weird Tales magazine, and it's one of the three Cole stories that were published in Howard's lifetime. I'm not going to get into the story itself here in this episode because, well, first, I've yet to read it. And second, they do tell the story very briefly in a couple of pages in issue number 25 of Conan the Barbarian, which we're going to get to over the coming weeks. The title of that issue, by the way, issue 25, is The Mirrors of Karama Kod. Now I just have to remember to read the Robert E. Howard story before we get to issue number 25. and. I wonder yes, just checked. it is part of the cool audio book that I already own, so yeah, gotta listen to at least that one story pretty soon, but one last thing before we get to my favorite bits, uh actually, no, I'll save it because. It happens to be another one of my favorite bits. So rather than repeat myself, I guess I should just shut up already and move on to Steven's favorite bits. All right, so I always have to start with the cover, whether it's one of my favorite bits or not. This issue's cover, once again, not a big fan. I mean, I love the look of Conan and, of course, the obligatory half naked babe on the ground. They look. Stunning. And Kurama in the background looking spooky as hell. I mean, I assume that's Kurama It looks more like a skeleton in a hooded robe, but I'm assuming it's supposed to represent Kurama Anyway, all of that looks great. What doesn't look great is the stained glass windows, which Barry seems to have a thing for, doesn't he? I haven't been keeping count of every time we encounter stained glass windows in these issues. And Maybe this is just the second time, but I don't know. I feel like if he's not doing intricate lattice work in the backgrounds, he's doing stained glass windows. And really, I just don't think they look all that great here, but that's probably more about the colors for me. The Blackhound of Vengeance, the way it's leaping into the frame, not great either. Not at all. To me, <laughs> to me I feel like the back legs which we don't see because they're off panel. I feel like they're connected to a forklift back there off panel and that the dog doesn't actually move. It's just a stuffed dog and it's being driven into frame and maybe moved up and down by the forklift like in some kind of low budget sci-fi fantasy movie. That's what I see when I look at that dog. So really, I like everything about this cover except for the stained glass windows, the blue wall that they're a part of, and the blue Blackhound of Vengeance. The opening title slash splash page is gorgeous. In fact, the whole issue just looks freaking great. Roy said that both Barry and Dan had plenty of time to do what they do, and it freaking shows here. It looks marvelous. It's a gorgeous looking issue. I'm really, really happy 100% with the look of this issue from page one to the final page of the issue. And I can't say that for all of the issues going back to issue number one. The reveal of Fafnir being alive and missing an arm was like a punch in the gut. I mean, when it's revealed that he was alive, I felt vindicated. I wanted to shout out, told you so. But then we find out that they had to take his arm. Again, like a punch in the gut. But here's the thing not only does this page look great, and it really does. So far, it's some of Barry's best work on the title, especially panel three. But not only does the page look great, we have this almost tender moment between Conan and Fafnir. And I can't help but wonder how the readers at the time reacted to this scene, especially the hardcore Robert E. Howard fans, because, well, it shows that Conan cares and not just for a woman. You know, we're used to seeing that. Conan helps a damsel in distress and kills everyone and everything that stands in his way from doing that job. But here, we're seeing the love between two dudes. Brothers, really. Conan and Fafnir have grown very close over these last few issues. And Conan, seeing his friend suffering and in pain, shows that he cares and that he's there for the Vannerman, staying by his side and only leaving him when he has an opportunity to kill some of the enemy, maybe even the one... Who shot Fafnir? This might very well be my favorite moment of the book. And the reason I wonder how the readers at the time reacted is primarily because Roy talks about this moment in his book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian. And he makes a point of saying that he feels that this scene does not weaken Conan in any way. And here, I'll just, I'll just read. It's, it's best to, to quote when it comes to something like this. Barry and I were humanizing Conan to a greater degree than Robert E. Howard would have done, but I didn't feel then, nor do I now, that we were weakening the character. The hero of a couple of dozen stories, the number Robert E. Howard wrote, doesn't have to act as much like a human as the hero of a monthly comic. We had now reached our 20th issue, and in all likelihood, many more lay ahead. So yeah, I agree. Humanizing Conan is not a bad thing because it's not like they turned down his violent side. It's there. Conan still kills a bunch of people in this issue, but I mean think about it for a second. If you're just if you're just reading this series, these 20 issues so far, Conan doesn't really have a lot of good male friends in his life. The only one, the last one was Captain Bergen and he was hanged. And now he has Fafnir and at this point, it looks like their days of adventuring together are over. And I really like how they portrayed Conan here. That's, that's basically what I'm saying. He, they humanized him a bit without weakening him in any way. I also like this bit here on the next page after Balthas tells Conan that his hair is too long, that long hair doesn't help Conan stay cool in such a hot part of the world and even offers to trim it for him. Conan refuses, of course, telling Balthaz that he would never let him near his throat with a blade. And for now, we'll just tie his hair back. We have to remember the first time Conan and Balthaz interacted, which was just the previous issue. They didn't have a great first meeting. Balthaz slashed Conan across the nose with a spear, drawing blood. Conan kicked him really hard in the gut and threw him overboard to be eaten by a shark. So despite the fact that they have been fighting together over the last, what, day, they've not grown close. Balthaz still holds a grudge. Anyway, yeah, Conan won't let Balthaz cut his hair and tells him that he's just going to tie his hair back. Then for the rest of the issue, Conan's sleeveless shirt is torn. The bit that goes up around his left shoulder is just gone. And I had to give this page a few more looks before I realized that Conan had ripped That bit off the shirt, and that's what he'd used to tie his hair back. I was super confused when suddenly his shirt is ripped. And maybe that is a small moment where Barry doesn't do a great job telling the story with his art because we see in one panel, he's fiddling with something at his shoulder. And then in the next panel, he's tying his hair back, and the shirt at that point is torn. So I don't know, it wasn't screamingly obvious to me what was going on. Because once I realized after he tied his hair back that suddenly his shirt is torn i I, I actually didn't notice for another page or so, and I thought, what happened when did this when did his freaking shirt get torn?" And I just started going backwards and suddenly it wasn't torn anymore and I, I again, it just confused me. but then I get confused easily. for example, there's another moment in the book that confused me and still kind of confuses me sort of, so I'll talk through it here and and maybe I will. Come to a different conclusion. But when Conan, Balthaz, and the others creep into the city, some of them appear to go off on their own on an even more secret mission, which is to climb to the top of the seawall, kill all the archers that are up there, and then set their dead bodies on fire. I'm not really quite sure what the point of all that was, other than to show that Prince Yezdegerd is a bit of an asshole because. When the dead archers are set on fire, we see the prince on his ship, and when he sees the smoke from the city, he knows what that smoke signifies, and we are told by the narrator that the prince smiles and then makes a tasteless jest that the narrator will not repeat. So yeah, I guess talking it out like that did actually help me a bit, because now I'm just assuming that. The men were sent there to act out a bit of revenge on the archers that had fired down on the Terranian ships when they first arrived outside of Makalit. And then the prince was allowed to laugh at it once he knew it was done. After that, we get to the last of my favorite bits in this issue, and it's the epilogue, which actually made me very sad. First off, I find it interesting that Roy says that these final two pages, the way Barry penciled them up, came to Roy as a bit of a surprise, and Roy had to figure out not just what he was going to write for the epilogue, which I'm assuming he had an idea because they do discuss or did discuss the, the plot of these stories before Barry started drawing, but Roy also had to figure out the way in which he would write it so that the letterer would be able to fit all of it in the spaces left there on the pages by Barry. In other words, Roy was left to write prose rather than narration boxes and word balloons. And frankly, I love it. I love these two pages. I think they look wonderful. And I really feel like this is a bit of the book that is separate from the main story, which as an epilogue, it it certainly is. It's kind of like in a TV show where they tell the last bit of the story without dialogue. We just see what's happening on the screen as music plays. That's, that's kind of what this feels like. It was something different, almost like an experiment in the way Barry wanted to tell this story, and it just plain works. I mean, it made the reveal of Fafner's death hit so much harder because you don't see it. You're told about it at the same time that Conan is told about it. You go through the same basic emotions that Conan goes through. And using this format to tell this part of the story makes the news of Fafnir's death feel almost callous, like an afterthought. And I think that was done for that very purpose. I don't think that Barry reached the last two pages of this issue and was like, oh yeah, I almost forgot that I have to tell the story of Fafnir's death. I think it was told in this way simply because Balfaz didn't feel that the life of Fafnir was worth anything. So we, as the reader, are told of his death in the same way, like it didn't mean anything. We become Conan in that moment, and we feel just how much of a bastard Balthaz is. And I don't think that the news would have had the same kind of emotional impact as it did here if it had been told in the traditional way, even if we actually saw it happen. These last two pages, for me, are incredibly emotional. I feel Conan's weariness as he's pulled onto the ship, like Conan, I go numb with shock when I'm told that Fafnir is dead and how it happened. I'm right there with Conan as he crosses the deck of the ship, almost robot-like, to ask Balthas why, and I feel the same rage that Conan feels as he's given his answer. And you know what? I know that earlier I said that the reveal of Fafnir losing his arm and Conan's reaction to that news was my favorite part of the book, but... Now, I changed my mind. It is this epilogue. But here's the thing. Having said that, I still don't believe that Fafnir is dead. Once again, we don't have a body. This is comics. No body, no death. Sure, it's assumed that because he was wounded and weak, because he had just the one arm, it's assumed that he drowned. And maybe he did. But I'm going to hang on to the hope that we will see the giant red-bearded Vannerman someday. We'll see him again. Maybe married with kids, farming in some far-off place. But most importantly, we're going to see him happy. And that, dear listener, was my favorite bit. Which means we would normally go to listeners' feedback at this point, but I'm actually recording this a little bit earlier than I thought because I'm trying to get a bit ahead of myself. So no listeners' feedback this week. Instead, I'm just going to kind of wrap up my feelings about this issue. All in all, I really enjoyed it. I would have rather had some sort of monster for Conan to fight instead of just a big dog. And really, that's the only thing about this issue that doesn't immediately put it at my most favorite issue of the series so far. But it is, most certainly, in the top three. Just just don't ask me what the other two are. I mean, one of them is rogues in the house. But the third, I don't know. And frankly, I, I really don't have the energy right now to bend my mind to such a task. I will, however, ask what your favorite issues of the series are so far. Email me, give me your list in order or in no particular order. Stephen or else at gmail.com. That is in the show notes. Send me your list. And maybe if we get a few of them, we could make an entire episode out of just those lists. For now, though, join me back here next time as we take a look at Conan the Barbarian number 21, The Monster of the Monoliths from September of 1972, which here's a teaser. Just might have my favorite cover of the series so far, and don't forget if you want to hear me talk about the very first episode from the 1992 animated series Conan the Adventurer, join the Super Secret Steven Society as a second level member or above today. Else.com is the link, which is also in the show notes. Until then, folks, keep your swords close by, never stop treading them jeweled thrones, and most importantly. Be nice to each other. Bye. Many wars and feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. A quick warning before we get started here. This episode will contain the names of. A quick warning before we get started here. This. Ju blah, blue, blah. Can't even get started. Can't even get started. A quick. Warning: Before we begin, this episode will contain the names of people and places that are entirely fictional, and that I am sure to mispronounce almost every time. There, how's that? Speaking of bonus episode, there yeah. Speaking of, Conan, Balthaz, and a few others are to take a small boat into Machelit, where they're where they where the where the wick wick book book wick, wick. number 9 number 9 number 9 slow down stephen take a breath let that breath out and now let's try again Balthaz doing his best admiral akbar explain the guard points them to a nearby temple and conan rewards him Re- why am i having such a hard time rewards 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 here's your reward ding dong the guard points them to a nearby temple and Conan reward he rewards him he gives him big old kiss right there on the sidewalk There, thanks buddy here's your kiss meanwhile, <coughs> meanwhile, <coughs> meanwhile 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 he quickly discovers that he's not alone when a low s- Okay, yeah. When a man comes up and says, hey, buddy, you're not alone. I'm with you. Have a beer. It's on me. Give me a hug and a kiss on the cheek and we'll be buddies forever. <laughs> Luckily, Conan still has his stolen sword. For f- Luckily, Conan still has his face. He's got the face. He's got the face. He's got the face that makes people poop their pants. <laughs> Luckily, Conan still has his stolen sword. For from out of the dark bounds the Black Hound, a large black dog that leaps upon Conan. (laughs) Luckily, Conan still has his stolen sword because from out of the dark, the Black Hound of Vengeance leaps, a large black dog. (laughs) This is what I gotta do, this is what I gotta do to get my head back in the game. Then we're gonna do the same. I need another word that rhymes with name, and I'm sure it's gonna be lame. Hey ho, what do you know? Steven's rapping with his toe. <laughs> Luckily, Conan still has his stolen sword, for from out of the dark bounds the black fart head with fart faces. <laughs> for from out of the dark bounds the black hound of vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> It's not long before the dog is back on him, and Conan stabs it. It's not long before the Conan is the Conan, the Conan's on the dog, and the dog is on the Conan. Everybody, Conan's on the dog, and the dog is on the Conan. Everybody, sing it out loud once, once, boo, boo. Just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Stephen did this to me. Enough talk.